This is InsureTech Radio, episode number nine. I'm Connor Sweetman. This week's guest is Nicholas Sewer, the CEO and co-founder of Casco. Nicholas Sewer is the co-founder and CEO of Casco. Insurance runs in Nick's blood. Back in Germany, his family's business are a market leader in classic and premium car insurance. And given his background, it's no surprise that Nick is passionate about how insurance is an enabler of personal and commercial enterprise. Nick went to university in the UK, and it was in in university that he met his co-founder, Matt Wardle. But after graduation in 2008, the two went their separate ways. Nick went back to Germany, and it wasn't until 2015 that the pair would reunite to start Casco. Casco provide insurers with an end-to-end modular platform that can bring new or existing products to the digital market in a quick and cost-efficient way. In essence, they provide InsureTech as a service. Please enjoy this conversation with Nicholas Sewer. Nick, you're very welcome to InsureTech Radio. How are you this morning? Connor, thank you for having me. I'm really good. And your business, Casco, can you tell me the story of how you started? Sure. So... Casco started in 2015 with the idea of creating an MGA that connects um, digital businesses, marketplaces, share economy with underwriters um, without having to rely on the IT infrastructure of the underwriters insurance company and their core systems. So what we set up is we set up our own, as we call, virtual MGA and went around knocking on doors trying to identify um, distribution touch points, as we called it. You know, this could be travel insurance when you book a train ticket, camper sharing, buying stuff online. And then take that back to the underwriters and um, put on a scheme, if you were, and then get a commission revenue from any volume that we would be writing. That is how it started. That's not where we are today, though. And how did you meet your co-founders? So Matt and I were um, put together in the same dormitory at Nottingham University. Oh, wow. uh, Got 2004. Uh, that's when you when you realize you're getting old. <laughs> <laughs> and so, how did it germinate then from for you guys? What was the, what were the conversations like that you're having? Uh, uh, so, well, for for ten years before you uh, actually uh, went into business together. So Matt and I were really good friends at university. Um, we studied together. He did uh, mechanical engineering before um, kind of moving back to London to then actually start computer science. At the time, we did not talk business at all. We just had a great time. Respected each other. And um, then in 2008, I, when I graduated, I moved back to Hamburg, um, started my career in insurance. We stayed in touch. And then some, yeah, five years ago, I reached out to him in the middle of 2014, just with an idea and question to say, shall we start something together? Um, we tried a couple of projects and then uh, nothing to do with insurance, actually. And then in 2015, we felt that... We were a good business team because, mind you, if you just because you had a great time at university doesn't necessarily mean that you have a great time um, building a business and running a business together. But that's how it started. I would say quite organic. Um, yeah. So how was uh, Casco then developed from that initial seed? So, um, so during the initial seed, what we found out is yes, there is a demand on the distribution side to offer 
insurance products. Now, the processes required to inject these digitally and also to adjust, let's say, the tariff structure, the pricing, uh, payment structures, etc., that there was a high demand um, for that and that usually insurance companies didn't have the required tech stack to do that because it's not how you usually write business when you're, you know, tight agents, brokers, price comparison sites were direct. What we also found out, though, is that it's really, really difficult as a startup to get into these really large distribution plays. So... One hypothesis, yes, there is a need for digital-enabled product distribution. Second, there's no real need for an intermediary for, let's say, a large bank and insurance company getting together. So what happened then, two years in, some of our insurance partners, because we did push some of the products to market, asked us, or turned around to us and said, guys, it's really great what you're doing. Um, number one, I have distribution. I actually have a lot of distribution. What I don't have is a, a separate platform that allows me to design my own products, offer them to my distribution partners the way it's meant to be in that specific instance without having to reprioritize my own IT because everyone's busy implementing large-scale digital transformation programs, and that usually binds all the capacity which is sucked out out of new business development and new partnerships. And that is when we pivoted to our current model, which is InsurTech as a service, where we basically rent our tech stack and our, I would say, understanding of how a digital product flows to our insurance partners as a white-label platform. And what are the, when you talk about um, how a digital product flows, what are the typical knowledge gaps? What, what do things typically, what things do typ- people typically overlook? So I think, I think at its core is the understanding that you build a product and then you, change, you don't change it for two years. That's the normal product development life cycle, right? You have the regulatory, you have the tariff pricing processes, and you build this, I would say, perfectly integrated product cycle and then you deploy to the market and then you wait what comes so if you deploy it in a digital manner you kind of think more in versioning and you'll assume that the probability of the first version be that pricing structure modularity data integration distributor integration you name it that that is really the perfect configuration is really unlikely. So you flip it around and saying, guys, let's assume that we will reconfigure, revariant, retinker with our product as we scale it up, as we get customer feedback, as distributors have feedback, as competitors enter the market. That's really it. It's more of a mindset shift. And then you value flexibility is then a higher, let's say, risk management or better bet than efficiency at scale that might never come. Yeah, I'm just thinking back to um, my career as an underwriter and helping develop products. And we, yeah, we typically try to build out everything and assume that everything will work for the particular uh, group of customers that we're going after, and then we'll launch it. And then, and then, uh, particularly from an underwriting point of view, you're not going to have a clue how it's going to run um, day one, day two, day three. Um, but I think it's wrong to have to wait for, for two years to, you know, before you realize you either made a mistake or you missed something or, or, um. It's just really costly, right? And yeah. I think it, it has to do with 
you know, the same way 10 years ago, it was a lot more costly to build a web shop, right? Mm. An e-commerce site. Now, today you can, you can um, get these up and running, iterate these really fast. And thus, um, what, I, what I always stress to our partners when I say, you know, speed to market. And then they rightly say, well, guys, you know, whether I launch in four weeks or 12 weeks, does it really matter? That's not the case, even if you launch something in six months. You know, if you have a running business, that's not going to make the massive dent on your P&L. It's the follow-up iterations that follow. It's the misinvestment in some functionality that might not be needed um, at the expense of a different functionality that you didn't expect because you're not getting the actual market feedback. So what we say, speed and flexibility is the best risk management unless you know exactly what happens in the next five years. Uh, yeah. And uh, what are what what are things that you look at to get feedback? So I think there's I think there's two aspects to it, right? There is what it's not is it's not a focus group on customers with insurance because I find it super difficult. You know, imagine getting thirty SMEs in a room and asking them what the perfect cyber product would look like. <laughs> I would find that really difficult to structure. So I think one um, feedback loop is just does the product work. Do I get, um, do, do people get into my flow? Do my distribution partners need it? Do, when do people break out in the flow? So it's basically sales, if you like, yeah. or the interaction on your sales funnel. Most importantly, though, because in most markets, insurance is still being intermediated, right? It could be a broker, it could be an agent, it could be a bank. So there's a lot of qualitative feedback that you get in a B2B setting. And so let's say you wanted to push a new, just for the sake of argument, cyber product to a bank, they'll have some feedback on their requirements, how their product needs to look like, their contextual information that then needs to be fed back into your digital cyber product to just make it onto their shop front. So it's those two types, qualitative feedback from your distribution partners just to get the product, you know, onto their shelves, if you like, and then actual customer feedback in terms of buying the insurance and then obviously you know as you then there's actually a third one it claims you know have you mispriced now to me that's not something that technology yes can give you better data sets right more underwriting information but at the end of the day if it is somewhat new and new can also be just in a different channel because you have a different subsegment of customers it's at the end of the day, the claims kind of dictate whether your underwriting model was, was great. And even if you expand your underwriting model to a lot of more data points, you don't really know whether they are predictive until you get some form of claims to stress test that model. Yeah. And I suppose as well, you cannot, when you start seeing claims come in or notifications coming in, you can assess whether or not the product is doing what the customers think it should be doing. Absolutely. And I think that that is obviously the core of, you know, a good insurance product. A good insurance product has a high level of risk premium as part of the total premium. And it pays out to what the customers expected to pay out. Let's call that a good insurance product while still maintaining a profit to the underwriter to continue the service. I think technology can help with that. What we say technology can even have a bigger impact is getting it to market, making changes quicker, getting efficiencies in the process, and thus 
really keeping the the role of the underwriter um, intact. Their role might change. It might be you know more of a data scientist than uh, classical actuarial work, or um, you know accepting and rejecting business. But I don't think that um, the core of it is. Um, where is, is the classical insurance product design. I think that is very well established um, in, most, in most markets. We think technology can make the biggest impact on product and um, distribution enablement. So you lower the hurdle rates of creating products that sub-segments of the market need. And so your customers are mainly established insurers, banks, that, that type of profile of company, is it? Absolutely, way more on the insurance side. Yeah. We do have some bank assurance partnerships, and sometimes banks come to us if they want to get a little bit more independence of the tech stack of their insurance partners. But usually, it's the insurance partner within the insurance partner, the underwriting, product people, distribution, marketing, who see more opportunity in the market than current IT capacity. And how do you find dealing with like? Uh, like procurement cycles within those organizations? So I think there's, well, they're long, right? <laughs> um, so one thing there, one thing to do, what we try um, to do is make, remove the vendor risk and also remove the business case risk somewhat um, from an insurer. So if you can price, let's say, an initial engagement on a product at thirty to 50000 then the procurement requirements, the governance requirements are much lower um, because the, the business risk to the insurance company um, or the procurer is much lower. So that is, we'll kind of not, not try before you buy, but buy a sample first, yeah. see how it feels like. And then if you like the engagement, if you like how this enables you to follow opportunities, then we can expand to more products, more functionality. But I think it's trying to de-risk the purchase for the procurer, um, which allows you to somewhat shorten the sales cycle. Yeah, and I suppose it kind of ties in with your model as well of kind of uh, starting small and kind of and then iterating from there. Exactly, because if you start from day one, how is this going to be hardwired in my target operating model on Guidewire in five years' time? It's really impossible to say because you're not even sure exactly how the processes, the data models of the products um, that are out in the market flow because they're continuously expanding. And um, so what, what do you think of uh, the future? You mentioned the role of the underwriter and how that changes. How do you see those kind of traditional professions evolving over the next few years? So I think, I think in general, it has never been, well, maybe it has, it has never is a strong word, but um, in, my, in my time since 2008 in the industry, I think now is a very, very, exciting time to work in insurance. It was always an exciting time, I think, to work in insurance, but you now have this inflection point of new technologies, new customer behaviors, new capital, new players, new people just entering the insurance ecosystem. And I guarantee you 10 years down the line, if we, you know, when we sit on our Hollywood swing and looking back and we'll say, wow, this was an exciting ride. And so I would say in general, it's never been as, well, I'll say, but, you know, it's, it's probably never been as exciting to work in insurance. 
And I think the role of each individual, I would just say, whatever repetitive work you're doing, that's going to ease out. But I think it's going to be more dynamic. It's going to be more to do with collaboration with partnerships, because as the insurance value chain is being, let's say, um, disaggregated, um, there's so much more opportunity to piece it together for specific use cases. And so you worked in uh, traditional insurance yourself, didn't you? So my background, um, I worked for a large commercial brokerage, um, something like Aon and Marsh, but not, it was called Funk Group, I think like number three in, in, in Germany. So usual large scale commercial customers and running their insurance programs. And then I went into the family business, with, which um, was an MGA focused on classic cars and vintage cars. And then I did some strategy consulting and then I started Casco. What was it like working in the family business? It was really cool. But yeah. it was, um, let's just say, there was there were two reasons why I did not see 40 years of future in, in the business for myself. I think the core thing is they really didn't need me. The business was going really well and it was didn't feel like I could have a large enough impact um, on the business. And secondly, it was very specific to classic cars and cars in general, which I unfortunately don't have a passion for. <laughs> so not really being needed and not having a passion for the core product that is being insured gave rise to some, you know, reconfiguration of my career path. Yeah. Um I suppose, yeah, a lot of people looking at the digital insurance now, um, myself included, are thinking of, you know, yeah, how do I re- reconfigure my career path? Like, what advice would you give these uh, uh, people working in traditional insurance roles? I think the one thing you'll always need, right, the, if, if the environment is more high, high paced, you need to be comfortable with changing things without getting a clear um, let's say mandate to do something. So if you want to get ready today, start changing things around. If, and it doesn't have to be the big thing. So, um, I would just say pick something, um, a process, a product, a partnership that you feel could be improved and try to start making improvements that don't warrant a large board level, multi-million or even hundred thousand investment. Because I think as the world becomes more complex, you need to become more entrepreneurial. And entrepreneurial doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that you are just your own boss. It just means you have to make do with limited resources. Mm. Great advice. And so in in Casco, um, I'm just trying to imagine, so you had that first iteration and then like, what was your first like big moment when you're like, okay, this is the right thing. Let's, let's, we're on the right track here. So it was, it was a meeting with uh, one of our larger Swiss customers and I was sitting down, I was pitching them our model and then Philip came back and he said, listen, you know, looks cool what you guys are doing. Not sure whether this works in Switzerland, but I have a very simple problem. I want to bring a smart phone insurance to market and I currently can't. I have everything, but I can't get it to work because I'm not going to get a reprioritization of our IT roadmap. Can you help me? And in that moment, I thought, 
wow, I did not know that that was a problem, right? I did not know that it, that insurers were so challenged sometimes to bring products to market within their own channels rather than, you know, these new digital distribution channels. And when I then realized what they were willing also to, to pay to get this type of problem solved, so the value of enabling this, that was a real aha moment for me. I did not, I'll be honest, prior to that conversation, I had no idea that there was a market like this. Well, it kind of shows the benefit of, I suppose, getting out there and trying something. And then. And I, and I think that is it, right? I think the. This kind of comes back to the advice. If you're waiting for someone to pave the road for your own personal development, this can happen. You sometimes are lucky. But a much safer route is, you know, start today, get grit. There's no such thing as overnight success. And that's what it's needed. And I think digital is not something that is a magical word. Really only what it means to me is connectivity, flexibility, and more opportunity. Because you drive down the cost of having multiple services tied together. And the sooner you start this journey of spotting an opportunity, trying to find a solution, trying to find a different solution to the same problem, rather than saying, if I don't get this project sign off or don't get this budget, I'm not going to go for it. You might get for a smaller part of it, that's fine. But I think starting that is really the key to it. And then looking back, all of the failures, all of the tough nights, you know, the rejections just kind of make sense at some point. And do you have a... When you look back at those kind of uh, failures or low points, do you have kind of a, a favorite of them, one, one that kind of taught you the most? I would not say that there was this one, the same way that there was one. No, no, I think it, it's a it's a series of, of things. I would say, and this was something one of our colleagues told me, because when Matt and I started out, it really wasn't working for two years. Right, we had so many discussions. We had the product out, but there was just no revenue coming in, and we got so many rejections. And then he said, "I, how did you, you know, stay on point, stay on target?" And what I told him, you know what, it didn't feel like rejections. It just felt like we were always progressing and learning something more, and we have just kept going because it really didn't feel like. A rejection. It was just okay. We learned something else, so now let's try it this way. Let's try it that way because we 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 felt, and I think we are proven right that there is enough value to be created in improving the insurance value chain and kind of reducing administrative costs, reducing hurdle rates, connecting different industries. I think we're just at the beginning of of this trend and we just kept at it we just had to find a way to solve today's problems get paid for it to um help shape the future yeah i think it's probably a, a good sign for yourself that you know you're being energized by the challenges as opposed to being demoralized by them trust me i was also being demoralized <laughs> you know it's it's tough um and for me, one of the rock 
um, how would you say, one of the um, key parts to me, I would not want to have done this alone. So my co-founder, Matt, was, was really, not just from a kind of complementary skill level, but just from a psychological level, because there's no one else um, that really understands what you're going through unless they're literally, you know, in the same trench as you. And for me, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm not a single founder. I need, um, I need a team and I need a partner. I might sometimes need multiple partners, but to me, having a co-founder that I could blindly trust, still blindly trust, hugely respect, and that complements me and my skills get was fundamental to being here. And uh, what are the complementary skill sets that both you and Matt have? So I would say there's, there's kind of two areas to it. I think there's, there's a classical vocational skill set. So I'm the insurance and kind of sales business guy. And Matt is the CTO, right, the technologist. But then there's another layer on top of it, which comes with, there is, I would say, when I kind of, I think he's more cautious than me. Um, so I'm very quick to kind of make certain certain decisions. I take that feedback and then I have him as a sparrings partner and he kind of, um, I would say, fine tunes our thinking. So it would be, I, w- I would say it's those two things. Great. Um, well, look, thanks many for your time. I think it's a great place to end. View um, any parting words for our audience? Yes, I would say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes, you know, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. It sometimes might not feel in your day to day that things might be looking a little bit greener on the other side, but um, keep at it. It's a really exciting time. Look out for partnerships and, you know, get moving on driving incremental change. It'll it'll get you wherever you want to wherever you want to go. Just don't accept that the status quo is is um, set in stone, and also, you know, change it, love it, or leave it. That's also an option. <laughs> Great advice. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers, Nick. Cheers.